Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, filling in for Bonnie Quinn alongside Paul Sweeney. Yesterday was an extraordinary day in markets. Stocks dropped about 3.5%. But gold was down and so were treasuries. Treasury yields rose, priced down, which was unusual and has only happened twice since 1990 on March 11th and March 18th. This according to Bank of America Global Analysts. The question is, are treasuries no longer a hedge against equity volatility? Joining us to answer that question, Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW with $235 billion of assets under management. Tad, what's your view on that? Well, there's a lot of incoherence in the capital markets, and I think pointing out the anomaly of uh, gold and bonds uh, versus equity and uh, the breakdown of some of the traditional relationships between those asset classes is one of the manifestations of this, uh, how do I call it, let's call it a masked economy in the sense that there's a massive policy response that's still working its way through the uh, underlying economy and getting priced into the capital markets. And that's very much at odds with the actual reality that we're facing in front of us. There is so much opacity as it relates to the ongoing withdrawal of stimulus that's taking place over time. The question that overhangs, will some of this be renewed or potentially enhanced with the elections? There's issues related to the vaccines. So I don't know that there's much that you can judge on the basis of historical relationships in order to make judgments about how assets are going to be correlating with one another. That said, there is so much suppression of rates and volatility on the part of the Fed. Um, The Fed is not, in a a sense, allowing the capital markets to speak up and express what they perceive to be this underlying level of uncertainty. And so it does call into question whether owning treasuries at these very low, historically low, uh, galactically low interest rates actually is going to correlate or, or provide any hedge against anything on an ongoing basis. All right. So, Tad, it, it seems clear, uh, particularly after hearing from Madame uh, Lagarde this morning at the ECB, that we are in a world of lower rates for longer. What does a person like you, a manager, fund manager like you, what do you do in terms of perhaps looking for some incremental yield in a, in a world where it's lower for longer? Yeah. So, in a sense, you have to take the gift that's being offered by the central banks to the extent to which they're so to speak, allowing you to rely on borrowed funds in order to to make your bones. Um, One of the ways you can do that is by accessing the TBA agency mortgage-backed market. There are exceedingly uh, low um, rates, uh, lower than the rates that you can earn by being long the agency mortgage that are implied in the financing. And so uh, relying essentially on the gift that's being given by the uh, by the agency mortgage market, courtesy of the central banks, is one thing that can be done. The other thing that I think that can be done is to remind yourself that we ain't through this yet. I mean, there, yeah. there's a, uh, it's, it's rather clear, at least from our vantage point, that there's an ongoing economic transformation. It's a bit glib to put it this way, but the economy of 2030, so to speak, is being fast-forwarded uh, practically into the present day. And what that means, of course, is that there are a lot of business models and a lot of assets that are going to be rendered obsolete or unprofitable. 
So wait. You can see this being expressed through delinquency rates on commercial loans in the hotel space. We don't need to talk a whole lot about what's been happening, the devastation in so much of the um, industries that are vulnerable to social distancing. And we have this huge question. We ran this amazing experiment in which we took many millions of professional, working professionals, and moved them out of the office environment and put them in a work-from-home type situation. So big question, I guess, that overhangs is how much commercial real estate do we need going forward? If you hold back, I suspect that there's going to be lots of opportunities as these asset classes reprice. Right now, we're living in a world where the sellers in general in so many of these related asset classes are looking for last year's prices, and the buyers obviously aren't stepping up to to validate that. Which is the reason, Tad, why there's been paralysis in certain commercial real estate markets, because there just hasn't been a meeting of minds in terms of what the value is. I want to go to a more liquid market uh, just to gauge the appetite for risk and to get your sense of whether people are perhaps getting a little ahead of themselves in terms of how much of a backstop the Fed is going going to provide. I'm looking at triple C rated uh, junk bonds. This is the lowest rated uh, debt that is the closest to default. And yes, yields recently have ticked up a little bit, prices down, but still the yields are now sub 10% versus a high this year of nearly 20% at the peak of the disruption in March. Are people pricing in the type of insolvencies or struggles that you're talking about that are inevitable regardless of all of the Fed support and regardless of any fiscal aid? I mean, the short answer is that as, as we localize the, the conversation to that part of the high-yield market, the, the triple C area, the highly leveraged and in many cases high operating leverage married to high financial leverage, there are there is not a sufficient degree of of uh, appreciation for the defaults that are going to be coming in those in those sectors, and nor, as you alluded to, I think is there sufficient appreciation of the defaults that are going to be coming into the uh, commercial real estate market as well. So it's it's very interesting. I mean, the Fed can liquefy markets, but and at the end of the day, are they going to make good operating losses to the bondholders or to essentially allow obsolete businesses to sustain themselves? in a zombified way on an ongoing basis. So it, it creates this huge tiering in which double B spreads are, I don't know, about 350 basis points over treasuries and triple Cs, which as you pointed out, they have actually been an outstanding performer um, from the point of view of where we were in March. And yet the level of, of credit risk associated with that part of the market is probably not properly priced at all in many cases. Tad, just real quickly, 20, 30 seconds, in the corporate credit market, any areas of opportunity for you right here? Uh, there have been a number of them, actually. Um, the, uh, but but the, the short take on it, essentially, is that you want to stick with the sectors that are most, that are least at risk of disruption by the, uh, the ongoing uh, changes, transformations that are occurring in the underlying economy. So basically, uh, in some cases, just we're really sticking with mostly higher quality uh, investment grade type uh, type issuers. Tad, thanks as always for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on all things fixed income. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer of TCW, that's Trust Company of the West, one of the big, big money managers out there, $235 billion firm-wide. It was a must-stop for me back in my analyst days on the West Coast. You had to go see the good folks at TCW. Getting his thoughts on the credit markets, fixed income markets here, uh, really an issue here as we kind of go into 
another level of this pandemic. Well, we got a slew of economic data this morning. GDP number 33% increase in the quarter, offsetting the prior quarter, 30 or partially offsetting the prior quarter's 31% decline. Jobless claims came in a little bit better than expected, but still stubbornly high. Let's dig into some of the meat of those numbers. We can do that with Constance Hunter, Chief Economist for KPMG based in New York City. Constance, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start with the GDP number. Obviously a big print, but we're no, we're not back to where we were pre-pandemic by any stretch, are we? Yeah, Paul, that's a great point. We are two-thirds below the pre-pandemic level of GDP. And, and just to put this in context, on a per capita GDP basis, we're back at... T- Q4 2017 levels, right? So I think it's important when you see such a bifurcation in the impact of who this impacts to think about not just the GDP level, but the per capita GDP. And then, of course, on a year-over-year basis, we're still down 2.9%. So um, we're not back. And more importantly, what this data says about the future growth rate is very interesting when we look at that bifurcation between goods consumption and services consumption. Uh, Constance, build up on that, please. What what does that say about the future of goods versus services? (laughs) Well, so first of all, normally in a recession, we don't see services consumption fall that much. And the reason is because people still go to the dentist and they still get their hair cut even during a recession. Right. So um, that fell dramatically um, services as a percent of GDP, in part because of lockdowns and in part because of reduced capacity. Um, Nobody bought World Series tickets, for example. So um, there was a lot of services consumption that just didn't occur. And then when we compound this with um, people spending more time at home, people are buying goods. Right. They're they're buying fire pits. They're buying, you know, outdoor, uh, you know, like lawn furniture, and they're buying uh, Pelotons and things like that, right? And, and there's only so many Pelotons you're going to buy, right? So that goods consumption, while it rose dramatically, and it's up 5.5% Q over Q, um, it is not going to continue at that pace. Right now, the and so the hope is that services continues to um, rise. It only rose two point eight percent Q over Q, and 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 that as we continue to reopen, services consumption is going to resume. The concern, of course, is that the virus is surging in a number of parts of the country and and actually growing in some parts of the country where it was not growing previously. And the concern here is this is going to hold back services consumption. So we're not going to see a repeat of the goods consumption. And unless services consumptions grow, we're, services consumption grows, we're going to see a pullback in the pace of growth of GDP pretty significantly. So Constance, where are you at? Where are you kind of coming out at, at KPMG in terms of your GDP outlook for the remainder of this year, but more importantly for 2021? Yeah, so in 2021, um, we're, uh, so our base forecast at the moment does not have additional stimulus. And, and let me just say that I think Good that's going to end up, yeah, well, yes and no. I was going to say I think that's going to end up being incorrect because um, if the president uh, wins re-election, he will try to put forth a stimulus plan. If Biden wins, he will try to put forth a stimulus plan. And the size of that stimulus plan depends in large part on whether the same party that holds the White House holds the Senate. 
right? So if you have a different party holding the White House than holding the Senate, the stimulus is going to be smaller. If you have the same party, the stimulus is going to be bigger. And it honestly, both the Republicans and the Democrats, if they are in control, are going to put forth similar sizes of stimulus. The focus on where those stimulus dollars goes, of course, will be very, very different depending upon whether it is a Republican or Democratic president. Constance, just give us a sense of how big the spread is in your estimates for the economy if we get a fiscal support bill or if we don't. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty significant. I mean, it, um, and, and we're, where it really comes down is in personal income. So we'll see personal income decline um, in 2021 if we don't get stimulus. Um, we will see it rise. And this sort of dep- this sort of makes the difference between like a 5% rebound in GDP and like a six and a half percent rebound in GDP. Wow, that's huge. Constance Hunter, thank you so much for being with us and for all of your uh, research. Constance Hunter is chief economist at KPMG joining us on those GDP figures. We didn't even get to the jobless uh, claims figures that we got today, which were better than expected, but still a very hefty amount, nearly 800,000 new claims coming in and a number of people shifting to permanent unemployment. This is the sticking point to me, uh, Paul, and I think about this all the time. What is the structural scarring that we are experiencing at this point? People who are not going to get back into the workforce for years. That's exactly right. And, you know, the longer this goes on, Lisa, the expectation is, you know, the more permanent some of those job losses will in fact become. And we saw that with the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, you know, many of those jobs took several years uh, to, to kind of get refilled and, and get back to a, a stronger employment uh, situation. And the concern is we may have something like that this, this time around as yeah, well. Yeah, with the added emphasis on this idea that there's an increasing focus on tech. So what jobs are going to be required? I don't know whose idea this was to have Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, and <laughs> Facebook, and Twitter all reporting earnings after the bell Ugh. on uh, October 29th. But here we are, and we are going to be trying to parse through all of these earnings reports uh, today. Even though they account for a significant chunk of the entire equity market of the United States, not to mention the world economy, joining us to help us focus on what the most important aspects of these earnings reports will be is David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw and Company and partner at BT Block. David, what were they thinking all coming out in the same day? <laughs> I got to start there. Well, Lisa, it reminds me a lot of, uh, I used to work for Nomura, the Japanese bank, uh, back around 2000, and it used to be the Japanese companies, all the banks, would all schedule their release date for the same day. So <laughs> I don't really want to say it here, but you know the tech big five, are they turning Japanese? Oh, very good. I saw, I saw what you did there. All right, David, so let's step back here. We've got a, you know, some real bellwethers for the technology economy, for the consumer economy, um, for the advertising economy. What are you going to be looking for as you kind of read across some of these big names uh, this afternoon? Yeah, certainly, I mean, Charlie, starting off at the top with Apple. Uh, I mean, clearly what's going to be happening in terms of sell-through or at least pre-orders for the latest iPhone is going to be most significant. Uh, Also, at the same time, looking at what continued demand there is for hardware. We've certainly seen from data sources such as NPD that, you know, laptop shipments are up substantially year over year seeing some of their strongest years in decades. Uh, so certainly we expect Apple to be participating in that. Um, you know, clearly looking for Amazon, um, you know, people continue to be staying home. Uh, obviously, 
Amazon is filling more and more of their needs. Amazon also at the same time. The movement to the cloud, we saw the strength in Microsoft's numbers earlier this week. Amazon's the leader in that sector. We would also say that Amazon has been moving more in terms of online advertising. So clearly, you know, Amazon has a lot of weapons to work with, and we expect to see them deploy them all. Uh, if we're looking at Alphabet, you know, even though uh, you had a lot of heat being put on the CEO last week, from uh, yesterday, from the Senate Commerce Committee, uh, we do expect online advertising continues to do well. Uh, there may be some drags that we see in terms of some of their startup ventures, uh, but, you know, from that standpoint, we still think that their markets remain strong, and they are clearly a significant player, even though Apple has been looking at moving off Google as being the main search engine on its phones. But still, we think uh, Google's Alphabet's position remains quite strong. Looking, you know, Facebook, also the subject of the uh, Commerce, hearing, Commerce Committee hearings yesterday in the Senate. Um, you know, certainly Facebook also benefiting as well. Also, with the run-up into the election next week, uh, all the social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, Snap to some extent, have all been beneficiaries of influx in terms of more campaign-driven spending. Um, but that's something that's cyclical phenomena. But elections, look, have only become more expensive over time. So we're seeing a nice uptick here from 2016 levels as far as spending is concerned. And then, you know, uh, let's see. I, I think that I think we got the I big think, one. I think, I think you, <laughs> as far you, as the big five. You got through a lot of it. I'm going to just uh, home in on one in particular, Amazon. I'm particularly curious about the costs that they have incurred to operate in this environment, to pay their employees enough to keep them coming back to work, to provide the right PPEs and whatever else to keep their uh, workers from getting sick. Do you think that they will be able to deliver the margins that are being priced into their share prices after the run-up that we've seen this year? I think that while you may have costs in their uh, online e-commerce business specifically related to worker protection, you know, remain high as they were back during the second quarter, uh, I, I think that the uptick that you see in terms of profitability on the cloud as well as on online advertising uh, could help to offset some of that margin pressure. So I think the mix at Amazon continues to improve favorably, and I think obviously we're sitting here in front of the uh, year-end holiday shopping season, which given all the news about COVID, people are not going to be going out to stores to do shopping. So where are they going to go? I guess it's Amazon. So, you know, you don't want to sell the stock here in front of the strongest seasonal quarter of the year. Hey, David, uh, that hearing we had yesterday where some of the, uh, you know, the Microsoft, uh, you know, we had some of those big uh, CEOs there. Is that, what do you make of that? Is that important risk for some of the big tech companies? Um, I mean, what's been interesting to look at here, Paul, is the fact that, you know, the tech companies have been ramping up their lobbying spending. Actually, the tech companies, Amazon being one, is, are actually spending more on lobbying than Boeing uh, or, or Lockheed Martin, who you would think of as being right. D.C. lobbying giants historically. Clearly, these spending levels are indications of what kind of regulatory risk these companies perceive around their businesses. And all we really saw last yesterday, uh, I hate to say it, uh, was the fact that just a lot of grandstanding, you know, the GOP coming down on these companies because of where their headquarters are geographically or what kind of contributions from a political standpoint their employees make. I mean, good Lord, Paul. I mean, yep. the next thing you're going to hear is that they're going to start criticizing these companies because of the religions of their employees or the color of their skin. Come on. This is <laughs> ridiculous. I think that Maria, Senator Cantwell, 
from Washington, I basically did the right thing and basically stepped in on the Democratic side and said, look, there's a freedom of speech in this country that needs to be protected. Right. And these companies in the testimony came out and talked about what they're doing to try and safeguard social media, as difficult as it is, right. from being manipulated by outside sources. All right. We'll have to say that's going to play out over the long term, certainly. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist, thanks so much for joining us. He's at Laid Law & Company, also a partner uh, at BT Block, giving his tech rundown. Well, as companies and governments around the world race forward in, in search of therapeutics and vaccines for this virus, it's probably worth taking a look at Operation Warp Speed. That's the U.S. government's effort to accelerate uh, development of a vaccine. We can do that with Stephanie Baker, financial investigation senior writer for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone uh, from London, and she has a Bloomberg Businessweek story. I think it's just fascinating here. Operation Warp Speed could shape up to be an $18 billion bargain. Stephanie, thanks so much for uh, joining us here. What's your key takeaway with the status of Operation Warp Speed? Right. Um, you know, given that uh, Trump has not um, pursued a strategy of trying to contain uh, the virus in the U.S., Warp speed is really the most visible, tangible response uh, of the Trump administration to the COVID pandemic. And it's, it, it is a unique initiative, public-private partnership, where they've given out billions of dollars to pharmaceutical companies to try to fast-track a COVID vaccine and um, utilize the expertise, the logistics expertise of the Department of Defense to try to help on the manufacturing side to try to help, you know, fast track everything from, you know, the manufacturing of, you know, syringes to vials um, and other uh, parts of the vaccine manufacturing process to make sure that once a vaccine is approved, there are doses ready. So obviously there's no point in having an approved vaccine unless there are doses um, waiting and ready to go into people's arms. So we just decided to take a closer look. Is it working? You know, how are these companies interacting with the federal government? What help exactly are they getting from the U.S. military? And it was kind of a fascinating look behind the scenes um, to try to figure out exactly what is happening. It does seem like it is moving forward. It's still an open question, of course, as to, you know, Will we get enough doses? Will there be a vaccine that will be approved? And if so, when? They're quite bullish in terms of when we might get one. That in Operation Warp Speed um, folks are saying that they think they'll have more than 100 million doses by the end of the year. So do you get a sense that the government is paying the appropriate amount for the development of these items, that they're overpaying, that they're getting a bargain? You know, I went into this thinking, actually, is this, you know, there were a lot of questions about lack of transparency um, and, you know, whether or not the pharmaceutical companies were profiting off this. And there's no doubt that there's some pharmaceutical companies that are you know, doing quite well off of this and their stock prices have rallied on the back of these government contracts. But if you step back and look at it and you look at the cost to the economy, trillions of dollars, I mean, huge economic fallout. $18 billion is nothing, and you could argue that they should be throwing even more money at this, um, given the scale of the economic fallout. So, Stephanie, is, you know, at this stage, it might be too early, do most people within the industry, the healthcare industry, the pharmaceutical industry, do they feel like Operation Warp Speed is, for lack of a better term, working, helping? 
the process? I think they are. I mean, you know, there are Operation Warp Speed has backed six companies developing vaccines, at least publicly. There are a couple of others that they um, are looking at backing. Um, and five of those are basically using Operation Warp Speed um, help either to run trials or to help on uh, on the manufacturing side. Um, Pfizer, which is developing a vaccine together with Germany's BioNTech, um, decided to go a different route, and they are paying for the cost of the, the clinical trials and manufacturing will recoup its investment um, when it sells an, an approved vaccine to the government. Um, you know, so I, I think it would be hard for these companies to be able to do this completely on their own without the government stepping in. And, for instance, they've used the Defense Production Act pretty extensively, actually, to prioritize um, uh, suppliers who are, you know, providing key materials to either the vaccine manufacturing process or, you know, Corning, which is another big company that is making glass vials or, and what have you. And I think that, is, that has helped. I think there would be delays if that had not happened. Stephanie, just 20 seconds here. How much do you expect us to be talking about government-funded medical uh, infrastructure the way that we had in this extraordinary setting in a more ordinary setting? You know, it's a really interesting question. How will this change the way the government uh, interacts, you know, with uh, health care provision going forward? I mean, I think the expectation is um, down the line um, that the government will step out once we have it in a vaccine and we have it in, you know, in, in sufficient supply that the government will no longer be involved. But I think it does raise the question of we need to be investing more in things like vaccine and rapid technology to rapidly make vaccines to emerging pathogens. Stephanie Baker, thank you so much for being with us and for the tremendous story. Stephanie Baker, senior writer for Bloomberg, talking about that story. Operation Warp Speed could shape up to be an $18 billion bargain. Uh, Meanwhile, I just want to bring you this headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. ExxonMobil is going to cut 1,900 jobs, mostly at U.S. management offices. This comes, of course, as the price of crude sags to the lowest since May. Uh, This is going to be through voluntary and involuntary programs, uh, and they have kept their dividend despite the oil route trying to attract investors. I'm Lisa Abramowitz filling in for Vonnie Quinn alongside Paul Sweeney. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.